0: Supporting human is not free market propaganda and politicians because they own my special campaign
1: welcome to the project censored show on Pacifica Radio I'm your host Mickey Huff this past September 11th an alliance of peace organizations presented an online seminar about the destruction spread by the US military in the 20 years since the 9/11 attacks on this week's project censored show we continue our theme this month looking back 20 years. And we'll hear remarks by some of the speakers at that event. It was sponsored by Code Pink, Project Censored, and Massachusetts Peace Action, among many other groups. We'll be hearing from Adia Benjamin, David Swanson, and more. Stay
0: tuned.
1: Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Twenty years have now passed since the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center in the Pentagon. Nearly 3,000 people died in those attacks. But the U.S. wars that followed in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere may have cost as many as several million lives, not to mention millions displaced and trillions of dollars. This past 9-11, exactly 20 years after the attacks, a dozen peace groups worked together to present an online seminar of experts and activists looking back at the last 20 years of war and anti-war organizing. The full program will be linked at the Project Censored page and is available on YouTube, and it ran more than three hours. This week's Project Censored show, we present excerpts from those talks, with special thanks to our producer, Anthony Fest. We'll hear first from Medea Benjamin, later from David Swanson, Sami Al-Aryan, and others. And now, let's begin our program.
2: I want to introduce Medea Benjamin. She is the co founder of the women led peace group Code Pink and the co founder of the human rights group Global Exchange. She's been an advocate for social justice for more than 40 years. Medea, thanks for
3: being with us. Thank you so much for putting this on. I know a lot of work went into this, and I want to put my remarks in a very simple framework for understanding these wars. And it's so simple that it literally goes on a banner that we often held during these years as code pink. And it said, who lies, who dies, who pays, who profits. And to me, that is the framework. Who lies? Well, we know it's the politicians, the generals, the lobby groups, the think tanks, the neocons, the corporate media. They distort the facts. They manipulate people's fears. Sometimes it's easy to do that, as in the case of Afghanistan, when people were ready for exacting revenge. And sometimes it's difficult, like in the case of Iraq, where they had to invent weapons of mass destruction and Al-Qaeda connections. They had to manipulate people into believing it was in our interest to overthrow Saddam Hussein. I went there with Jody Evans and Wright a whole group of us who went before the US invasion and had the women holding on to us and saying, don't allow your country to invade. We don't wanna be liberated by bombs. We can't be liberated by bombs. The US wanted to roll out its campaign to convince people about the need to get rid of Saddam Hussein in the summer of 2021. But Bush's chief of staff, Andrew Card, told the New York Times, They decided not to do that because quote, from a marketing point of view, you don't introduce new products in August. So they waited and they found the perfect time to introduce this new product. And that was exactly one year after the 9-11 attacks, September 11th, 2002, to introduce the quote, need to invade Iraq. And people now know in the case of Afghanistan, the lies we were fed for the last 20 years. Who died, people who joined our military because they wanted to do the right thing for this country or because they simply wanted to get an education which they couldn't afford. But the same is true in places like Afghanistan where we were told by women there when we traveled that their sons joined the Taliban to put food on their table. Most of the young men who have died in these wars, no matter what side they're on, are from poor families. But we know that most of the people that died have been civilians. And while we are rightfully mourning those civilians who died in the US on 9-11, there is barely any mention from those in power about the millions of people who were killed, maimed, displaced by our wars in Afghanistan and throughout the Middle East who pays? Well, we know it's us, the taxpayer. I was actually flabbergasted to hear Biden acknowledge the cost of the Afghan war in his speech the other day when he said twice, $300 million a day we had been spending for the last 20 years. I was so glad that millions of Americans got to hear that figure. But it's not just what we've been spending every day and to think, well, that's over now that the troops have left Afghanistan. In fact, Brown University says that the cost will be paid by decades to come and estimates that in 2050, the interest alone on the Afghan war debt will amount to $20,000 for every single American in this country. And then the last question is who profits? And we know there, that it's the merchants of death, the weapons companies, the military contractors. We've seen how the share prices of those weapons companies have soared since 9-11. We've seen how some of them, as in the case of Lockheed Martin, has gone up over a thousand percent. Lockheed Martin, the producer of the, quote, precision bombs, that in Afghanistan hit weddings and funerals and hospitals, the precision bombs that in Yemen hit a school bus killing over 40 children. One of those profiteers is General Dynamics, whose CEO made over $20 million last year peddling these weapons. And I had a chance to get inside their shareholder meeting and confront her and the board. And I said, if you have a business model where you need war to make money, there's something fundamentally wrong with your business model. She replied saying, you're wrong. We pray for peace. We work for peace. But just a week before, she said that the potential of the world becoming even more dangerous was producing a, quote, nice cadence for their orders. These weapons companies are really important not only because of their moral bankruptcy and their profiteering, but because they help determine our policies. They bribe our politicians with campaign contributions. They put generals on their board who influence the Pentagon. They make their death machines in districts all over the country, giving communities and politicians a stake in keeping the war machine humming. So if we are to break this machine, if we are to stop the money flow, if we are to stop the wars, especially a new one that they are gearing up to with China, it means cutting the Pentagon budget. It means confronting the politicians who want to continue to shovel obscene amounts of our tax dollars into the death machine. And that's why I'm so excited about Code Pink's new campaign to cut the Pentagon budget. Now is the time. I have seen just in the last few weeks going to different rallies, anti-eviction rally and an affordable housing rally, a Medicare for all rally, a rally for a climate justice. In every single one of them, the question was asked, if there is trillions of dollars for war, why isn't there money for these life-affirming activities? So that is our job right now, and I look forward to working with all of you on the Code Pink and the broad alliance we're putting together for this campaign to move the money precisely from war to life-affirming activities. Thank you.
2: Next up, I am pleased to introduce David Swanson. David is an anti-war activist, journalist, radio host, and author. He is also the executive director of World Beyond War and a campaign coordinator for Roots Action. Welcome, David
0: thank you for including me with all of these wonderful people. Just a basic overview of of what we've been through. We're looking at, despite all the focus on the horrors of that one day, 20 years ago, and all the focus on the ending of a war as itself, supposedly a catastrophe, the wars of the 20 years, we're looking at millions dead, injured, traumatized, homeless, the rule of law eroded, not just in certain spots, but around the world, the natural environment devastated. Government secrecy and surveillance and authoritarianism increased worldwide. The right to protest constrained. The wars for freedom, and we're not getting our freedoms back with the ending of the wars for freedom. Terrorism increased, not eliminated, not decreased, increased worldwide. Weapon sales increased worldwide. Racism and bigotry spread far and wide trillions and trillions of dollars wasted that could have done a world of good. Uh, Wealth transferred upward to a handful of profiteers. A culture corroded, a drug epidemic generated in the United States, a disease pandemic made easier to spread. And the U.S. military turned into such a machine of one-sided slaughter that its casualties, despite being 98% of the media coverage, are less than 1% of those in these wars. And the top cause of death in the U.S. military is suicide. On the other hand, we, opponents of this madness, leave behind in these 20 years a number of additional wars prevented, wars ended, bases stopped, weapons deals stopped, money divested from weapons, police demilitarized, people educated, ourselves educated, and the tools to carry all of this further, as we must do, developed. These wars that uh, have used the excuse of war on terror have been in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Libya, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, Philippines, and additional military actions that they don't call wars in a dozen more countries. And then dozens of attempted coups, despite the endless wars on top of that. The dead, there ought to be a serious scientific study and survey. Now, if you're going to justify these wars as somehow doing more good than harm, you have to know what the harm is. The best evidence we have suggests a couple of million dead in Iraq, over a million dead in Afghanistan and Pakistan, a total of almost 7 million dead, and then 7,000 U.S. troops on top of that. You're looking at one-sided slaughters And nobody's being told that. And those envying the dead, of course, the much greater numbers, bigger than six or seven million, many millions of people injured, traumatized, made homeless, lives ruined. Financial costs uh, for everybody but a handful uh, of lucky, short-sighted profiteers uh, include the the direct cost uh, of the militarism, also the lost opportunities, the destruction, the future healthcare costs, the transfer of wealth to the wealthy, and the ongoing cost of the military budget that is increasing despite a war ending. Between 2001 and 2020, you're looking at the U.S. military alone spending hundreds of billions of dollars a year. But people who look at The U.S. budget have been consistently telling us that there's another half a trillion dollars not in those numbers. There's a couple of hundred billion dollars spread across numerous other agencies outside the Pentagon, outside of some of the nukes in the Energy Department, the secret agencies, all of these military expenses, plus another hundred or two hundred billion dollars in debt for past military expenses and another $100 billion or so in the cost of health care for veterans. So we're looking at maybe $22 trillion in military expenses just by the United States, just in these 20 years. Uh, The Institute for Policy Studies has just come out with a report finding $21 trillion for that period. So if you read reports that that we've spent six trillion dollars or we've spent eight trillion dollars on these wars, these are very well intended reports from very good organizations that do tremendous work. But they normalize the bulk of the military spending, uh, which over these 20 years has not been 38 percent wrong. It's been 100 percent wrong. What could have been. The calculations that economists have done, including at the University of Massachusetts, you get more jobs and better paying jobs, putting the same dollars into decent things like education and clean energy. So apart from the moral and environmental and humanitarian concerns just with the economics alone, uh, you're talking about much more than 22 or 21 trillion dollars if you had spent it more wisely. And of course, with tiny fractions, you could end starvation on the planet. You could end the lack of clean drinking water on the planet. You could fund attempts to forestall the destruction of the Earth's climate beyond the wildest dreams of the best environmental groups out there if you just moved the money. So the money kills vastly more people even than those millions killed directly by the wars by being diverted from where it's needed. Thank you very, very much for including me here.
2: Next, I'm going to introduce Kathy Kelly. Kathy Kelly has worked for nearly half a century to end militarism and economic wars. At times, her activism has led her to war zones and prisons, sometimes with Code Pink. And she has traveled to Iraq and Afghanistan several times and been arrested over 60 times for her activism. So happy to have you, Kathy.
4: Well, thank you, Frank and Emily. It's good to see the dynamic duo of the two of you together. Thank you very much to the dynamic duo of Code Pink teamed up with Massachusetts Peace Action. You know, my young Afghan friends have a saying, blood doesn't wash away blood. And when I think of that, and think of the United States history and the foreign policy, A foreign policy based on threat and force and bloodletting, which has said again and again, if you do not subordinate yourselves to fulfill our national interest, we will eliminate you. And then tagged on to that now, after the horrible economic sanctions, economic war waged against Iraq, the United States can say, and if you don't believe us, look at the graves of the children of Iraq. Hundreds of thousands of them, our country, practicing child sacrifice and all the while trying to pretend that somehow we are always those who are victimized. The hypocrisy is enormous. And so here we are today with 800 bases, with a military budget that gets increased with the heads of military contracting firms. I mean, do they laugh on their way to the bank with their portfolios stuffed? And, and United States people still, to some extent, a bit of sleep at the wheel. And so what we have before us is so, so necessary to, to change. And I believe that sometimes stories are what enable us to make sense out of our reality. So I would just like to share briefly with you the story of a mother whose child had been killed by a bomb following drone surveillance. And she knew that the drone up above must have known that her child was only going to that building for shelter. And so I happened to stumble into the the funeral for the child and sat in silence and realized that who the mother was because other women were coming and embracing her. And she wore a medical hood and a neck brace And she asked her son to bring pictures of the disastrous day when the bomb had hit the place where her child was sleeping overnight for shelter. And then she asked her son to bring a picture of her child. And there was a girl with round, big eyes and a very serious face, but you could imagine her smiling, a little six-year-old girl. And the mother tapped the plastic over the picture. And she fixed me with a very definite look. And she asked, who are the terrorists? Is she the terrorist? And then her eyes welled up and she whispered the name of the president of the United States at the time, George Bush. Abraham Heschel, a rabbi, has said, some are guilty, but all are accountable. And so we do carry this accountability to that mother who asked, Who are the terrorists? And then I also am reminded of a young mother in an Iraqi hospital. And, you know, they didn't have any electricity in the hospitals. There there weren't any lights. There wasn't really enough oxygen. And and her little child was suffering both from starvation and gastrointestinal disease. And her heart started to give out. So people started screaming up the hallway to get a doctor. And he happened to be a doctor. I was sort of trying to interview Dr. Kasey al-Rahim. And the doctor went running and we went after him. And he tried to give mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to this little infant. And then he stood up and he said, I am sorry, your child cannot live. We have not the plastic. We have not the tube. And the child's nostril was so small that they didn't have a small piece of plastic to inject into her nose. And so for lack of a piece of plastic, while hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children died because of United States economic warfare. That child died. My shoulder was damp from the mother's tears. And then the mother said to me, believe me, I pray. I pray that this never happens to a mother from your country. Was she a terrorist? And so we see again and again and again, innocent lives, stolen, wasted. We hear Daniel Hale, telling us that he would really almost rather go to jail for the crime of having wasted, stolen innocent lives. And we must repair the wrong that's been done. We must pay reparations and also commit reparations by dismantling the terrible military systems that have caused so much havoc, so much despair. And I think two words to begin that entire endeavor must be on the lips of all of us we're sorry. We're so very sorry. Next up, I want to introduce Dr. Samuel Arian, who is a political activist, a community leader, and a former political prisoner. He was prosecuted by the Bush administration under the Patriot Act. And despite his innocence, Dr. L. Arian, was imprisoned for years before being deported to Turkey in 2015.
5: Professor, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. When 9-11 happened, the American political establishment had to explain to the American people what had actually taken place. They had two possible answers. One, that we were attacked because of our policies the policies such as the occupation of the birthplace of Islam in Saudi Arabia after the first Gulf War, or the sanctions on the Iraqi during the 90s, in which half a million people died, in the words of the former Secretary of State, Madeleine Halfbright, in which she said it was worth it, or because of the policies in supporting Israel the military hardware and economic subsidy to the tune of $200 billion over the past half century, or the occupation of Palestinian land and subjugation of the Palestinian people, or the propping up totalitarian regimes in the Arab world undermining democracy every step of the way. These are regimes which have been supported by successive American administrations throughout the years. All these policies, if they were the root problem that caused the tragic attacks, that would have been an answer. But of course, we were given a different answer. The other answer was that America was attacked because of our freedom, our democracy, of who we are. And because we can change who we are, we have to change who they are and therefore, We had occupations, setting up corrupt and incompetent regimes, detentions of thousands and thousands of people, Gitmo and Abu Ghraib, torture, black sites, drones, bombings, assassinations, the surveillance state, CVE programs in order to recruit thousands and thousands of informants, the securitization of the American Muslim community, the demonization of Islam and Muslims, the whole thing. What happened after 9-11, in the words of a former FBI agent who had a change of heart after 17 years of trying to serve this security state, his story was told to us by the New York Times last week, Terry Albury, he said that this was very Important revelation is that what happened after 9-11 is that it was decided that Islam is the enemy and therefore we had to go and fight throughout the world as well as domestically. In doing so, silencing Muslim leaders, undermining Muslim institutions inside the United States, infiltrating Muslim communities, targeting the most vulnerable among them. Using entrapment and other underhanded tactics, just to name a few, became standard government policies. I was among the first to be targeted, first Muslim leaders, that is, to be targeted by the US administration at the time because of powerful interest groups who thought that I was dangerous because of my stance on Palestine, my activism against the government on secret evidence and other civil rights abuses because of my criticism of American foreign policy and domestic policy. And uh, the attempts actually to silence me were long before 9-11, but 9-11 became the perfect pretext to fulfill that goal of eliminating my voice and ability to challenge the false narrative of imperialism and settler colonialism in Palestine. Now, 20 years later, it's clear that this policy has failed and the explanation given to the American people has been exposed as false and a lie. The last military act of the United States this week, this past week, is very revealing. You can read it today in the Washington Post and New York Times. The government said that they prosecuted a drone attack in which an ISIS, person was was targeted and he was eliminated. And that because of secondary explosions, other civilians were killed. But what the actual revelation of the investigation by New York Times and Washington Post is that this person was working for an American aid charity. He was pro-American. He actually applied to be resettled. He was targeted because he went to a house that the intelligence services thought was a safe house for ISIS, which wasn't. It was the house of his boss. He was trying to pick up a laptop. And they went after him for eight hours. And because he went four different places, he basically was dropping off and picking up his colleagues. And because he put something in his trunk and they thought they were explosives and that's what caused the secondary actions. They were not, they were simply jugs of water, because there wasn't water in his neighborhood, and they said that he was targeted alone. It wasn't true. Ten people were killed, including seven children. This is emblematic of the actual so-called war in terror, in which, by the way, the figure of two trillion dollars that was spent on these wars, much of it actually never left the United States. Most of it was profiteering from these wars whether it was defense companies, whether it was contractors, whatever have you. Today, Afghanistan is poorer, poorer than it was in 2001. In 2001, the average daily income of the Afghani person was $2 per day. Today, it's less than $2 per day. So none of that money actually went to Afghanistan. And none of it actually went to the American people. It just went to certain people who became extremely rich. Now, when I was arrested back in 2003, I was among the first to be arrested and prosecuted by the so-called war on terror. I was facing three life sentences plus 220 years. The government wasn't even ready for the trial, so I had to wait 27 months in solitary confinement until they get ready. All in all, I had to spend 43 straight months in solitary confinement. They had 471,000. They had on me over a 10-year period, 21,000 hours to be exact. They had over 400,000 documents, 2,000 audio tapes, 600 videotapes, 65,000 Hebrew documents that they threw just for fun. They brought in 80 witnesses in which 21 were from Israel. We had zero witnesses. It was the longest trial since 9-11, still is, six months from opening to verdict. And with all that, with all the advantages in which they spent over $200 million in that trial, they got zero convictions. There were four of us. They could not convict on a single accusation, single charge, even though they had over 100 charges. But they were not ready to let go. So I had to deal with them, give up my rights, and leave. And after the agreement, they kept me for another eight years waiting because another prosecutor, a Zionist, who didn't like that verdict. He had to bring me and drag me there trying to get me to testify, even though we agreed that there will be no cooperation. And I had to wait another eight years in which I was charged in another charge and put on first two years in prison and then six years under house arrest. And at the end, because we had a decent judge, the government had to give up. And of course, I have already given up all my rights, despite 40 years living in America. At any rate, what this was, what it shows, is simply a new face of America that is ugly, that has been exposed. And that what we need is grassroots movement to stand up to these policies and to stand up to the ugliness of this so-called war and terror that has done nothing but devastation, destruction, deaths, all in the name of the American people. And if this is a true democracy, then people really have to resist, mobilize, organize, and make change. And I appreciate the efforts of many people who are attending today and many organizations and institutions who are trying to do that. But we have to think also outside the the box, (laughs) meaning that there is something fundamentally wrong with how we're resisting. I remember when I was under house arrest, the Occupy movement, there was a lot of good people there in the streets, but they could not come together to make an effective change. The challenges are many. The money that is in politics today and corrupting the whole system has to be has to be faced and has to be dealt with. But all in all, we need to bring all good-hearted grassroots people together and think of how you can make a change because believe it or not, what America does, it's destroying the whole world. A lot of people who live in America see only a part of this but the impact is huge. And uh, you know, when people resist, certainly they can win but at the end, still the stick is big The the devastation is wide. the manipulation of the economic institutions throughout the world, just like destruction and mayhem all over. And therefore it makes a whole difference when we have people who care about peace and care about real freedoms and care about people that they come together and make a difference in this world. And since America is doing much of that destruction, then it's very important that people, American people, people with conscience, take the responsibilities serious and try to make a difference in this world. Thank you.
2: So up next, we are going to have Norman Solomon, American journalist, media critic, activist. Solomon is a long time associate of the Media Watch Group, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. In 1997, he founded the Institute for Public Accuracy, Since 2011, he has been the national director of RootsAction.org, Norman, take it away.
6: Thanks so much and thanks to everybody who's made our gathering here today possible. When we hear all the media coverage and retrospectives about 9-11, we rarely hear and certainly almost never in the mass media hear that when people are killed, whether it's intentional or predictable, Those are atrocities that are being financed by U.S. taxpayers. And so we hear about the evils of Al-Qaeda and 9-11, and certainly those were evils. But we're not hearing about the predictable as well as the intentional killings. The tens of thousands of civilians documented to have been killed by the U.S. military in the last 20 years and then the injuries, and then the terrorizing of people with drones and other U.S. weapons. We're hearing very little about that. And part of the role of activists is to make those realities heard, make them heard loud and clear as forcefully and as emphatically and as politically powerfully as possible. Our role as activists, I think, sometimes can get blurred in terms of getting them conflated with the roles of some of the best members of Congress. And when our progressive peace heroes in Congress push for peace and disarmament and social justice, they deserve our praise and our support. When they succumb to the foreign policy blob, when they start to be more a representative of the establishment to the movements, rather than a representative of the movements to the establishment, we've got a problem. I think it's the role of peace activists, certainly one of our roles as individuals and as organizations, to be clear about what our goals are and be willing to challenge even our friends on Capitol Hill and I'll give you a very recent example. Two of our leaders of anti-war forces in the House of Representatives a couple of weeks ago circulated a dear colleague letter encouraging members of the House to tell the chair of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, to stand firm behind President Biden's 1.6% increase in the military budget over the budget that Trump had given us the year before. And the point of the letter was, Chairman Smith, we want you to defend this increase in the Biden budget, that's 1.6% against the budget increase that has been passed by the Senate Armed Services Committee Of 3.3% increase. That kind of a letter moves the goalposts further and further to the liking of the military industrial complex, to the liking of the war profiteers, to the liking of the warfare state. And so when people we admire and support, in this case, Mark Pocan and Barbara Lee, circulate that dear colleague letter there's a tendency for organizations to say, yeah, we're gonna get behind you. We will respond affirmatively to the call to urge our members, to urge their representatives in Congress to sign this dear colleague letter. And what that creates is a jumping off point that moves the frame of reference farther and farther into the militarism that we're all trying to push back against. And for that reason, me and my colleagues at rootsaction.org decided to decline the invitation to sign that letter. I bring it up not because that is a make or break moment, but because it's indicative of the pathways and the crossroads that we face to build a stronger and more effective peace and social justice disarmament movement. And it's replicated in many respects. When we're told that it's not practical on Capitol Hill to urge a cutoff of funding to all countries including military funding and assistance to all countries that violate human rights. And when we're told that Israel is off the table, it's not our job to internalize those limits that have been internalized by even almost all of our heroes on Capitol Hill, except for the squad and a precious few others. It's our job to speak not only truth to power, but about power and to speak clearly and candidly, including to those who are often our allies. It's not easy to put it mildly to go against the powerful stream of media, of politics, of big money, of the way that every day issues are framed to us in terms of what's practical, but whether as in the last few weeks, and perhaps especially today, the mass media are paying attention to issues of war and peace, or whether we are often disregarded as outside of the frame of breaking news, it's Peace activists, it's social justice activists, were the ones who can change history. And organizing is what does that. And I'm very happy to be involved at Roots Action. We have launched something called progressivehub.net. And it's for all groups, not just Roots Action, as a tool for organizing. And so I wanna invite you to consider making it part of your daily visit online. If you go to progressivehub.net, not only can you see what is happening around the country and beyond in terms of organizing, but you also can provide information and analysis so that we all become stronger in building the social movements that we so desperately need. Thank you very much.
7: Our next speaker is Rick Jankow. And Rick Jankow works with the National Network Opposing the Militarization of Youth, or NOMI. They oppose the growing intrusion of the military into young people's lives all around the United States. And thank you so much,
4: Rick.
8: You're on. I've heard a lot of really important questions asked, but not until the tail end of this webinar. And that concerns me greatly. because. I think these are questions that should be discussed and debated and critiqued by every one of the groups that's present or represented here. And they're not, it's not happening. I don't see it. Questions like, why was the anti-war movement unable to stop the invasions? Why have we come full circle after 20 years? I would say, why after 60 years? Because I, my generation was part of the movements of the 60s. And we thought revolution had actually been achieved, but obviously it hadn't. So it's really concerning to me that people haven't stopped their organizing long enough to critique themselves and critique their focus and their direction. And instead, we follow the same pattern that basically protest movements have followed in the United States for generations, which is we focus on the crises and then we react. We try to put out fires that are handed to us instead of trying to deny fuel for any fires. And that's where education and the school system is the most important factor. Because what I learned looking back at this in a critical way over the last 35 years that I've I've been working with schools and in schools and with young people, is that people don't think so much about where behavior comes from. They just think about the behavior. And the reality is that the other side, the corporations, the military, conservative organizations, they do think about that and they act on it. And you will find them in the school system in many ways. You won't find very many progressive groups that are represented here in the school system. And that's a major, major error, a mistake, because it's all about planting seeds. If you don't plant the right seeds when people are captive audience for 13, 14 years, five days a week, seven or eight hours a day, nine months of the year, the other side is planting their seeds and they're planting seeds for weeds. That's the reality. And so to me, it is paramount that more progressive organizations, organizations with progressive goals, reevaluate their direction and find some way to prioritize at least some work focused on the school system, particularly the K through 12 system academic study and research and writing and all is very important and valuable because it helps us with resources but it's the k-12 through 12 system where the seeds are planted for the kind of wars that we have been having we have to learn we have to learn from the military the military they're not random about what they do they pay companies to advise them on marketing and and marketing strategy We need to do the same thing. We don't have the money to pay for those companies, but we can strategize and we can ask critical questions like the ones that some of us have mentioned here toward the end of the webinar. I mean, I was asked originally to come on to this to talk about, for example, recruiting in schools and what impact 9-11 had on recruiting. Well, okay, you'll see headlines like these today trying to make it seem as though 9-11 spurred this patriotic response and that people were enlisting like crazy. Well, in fact, it's not true. It's not true. That's not really what happened. For a year or two, yes, there was, there was a temporary increase in interest in the military among young people, but it wasn't because of 9-11 so much. It had more to do with the economy. And this is something that I've tried to educate people about because they they like to think, oh, it's counter recruiters who are forcing the the, uh, enlistment rates down or war. And it isn't. It's a combination of those factors, but primarily the economy. When unemployment goes up, so do the enlistments of what the military, what the army calls high quality enlistees. When unemployment goes down, they have more difficulty. And that happened. If you you look at 2002 and 2003, you you see that temporary surge of enlistments. But then in 2005, the Army fell 7,000 short of their 80,000 enlistment goal. And it didn't really change for them until unemployment rose again. That is really what drives enlistments more than anything else. I want people to understand that because they may think, oh, war does that. It doesn't. I would like to think it did. But when people are forced, because of their socioeconomic status, to make a hard decision, like agreeing to join the military and become an infantryman and and go out and risk their lives, they're doing it because of desperation. And there's no way that that they're just going to ignore that. Uh, And recruiters understand it. So what I'm getting at here is that we really have to think more about what goes on in the school system, not make assumptions. Really, here's the danger of what's going on in the school system. And this relates back to what I was saying about, you know, where where should we be focusing our time and our energy? In 3,400 high schools, there are junior ROTC units. And the combined number of students who on any given school day sit in a military indoctrination class is over half a million. Okay, and many of them are also offered in school marksmanship training. Think about that. Over half a million students, and they don't just absorb JROTC propaganda and that's it, and it stays while they're in the class. They go into other classes and they take it with them. And it also follows them into adulthood. Now, you go, okay, there there are many more high school students than than half a million. Well, here's the deal. Right now, they're trying to solidify proposals to greatly expand the JROTC program. One proposal is to increase it to 6,000 schools. So then you're going to have a million or more students in that program. And while that's happening, these are the kind of lessons they're being taught. This is the results of a review that we did last year, and some of the conclusions we had, which is those textbooks show racial, ethnic, and gender stereotypes. There's anti-Muslim propaganda. There's whitewashing of our wars. But the most important concern that I have from what I, what I read was that Constantly, that program tries to teach young people that military values and codes of conduct are presented in a way that they should want it for civilian society. That's what they're convinced of when they walk out of their JROTC classes. Think about that. We have a half a million students going through that system, coming out, and they've been taught that military values and codes of conduct are appropriate for civilian society. And we want to ask ourselves how does it we come full circle and have the same struggles today that is the thing that that I feel we should be talking about so um, I do have a list of links these are resources that people can use if they if they decide yes I want to do something about this I do want to address this problem in in K through 12 schools these are links uh, to resources And I pasted them in the chat earlier, but I'm assuming they'll also be here in the recording and I can paste them in again. But this is a practical way for groups to get involved. And I'm not saying you have to drop everything else you're doing, but I'm saying groups like Code Pink and and Peace Action and and a variety of other organizations, they're doing valuable work in, in agitating for more progressive change they should look at how they can maybe shave off some of their attention, some of their resources to focus on this. And that's pretty much all I have to say. And thank you very much for giving me a chance to to share this
5: information.
2: Thank you so much, Rick, um, for posing those critical questions and for reminding us just how deeply embedded militarism is within our schools. I want to introduce Jody Evans. Jodi is the co founder of Code Pink and the after school writing program 826LA. She's been a visionary advocate for peace for several decades, and she inspires us at Code Pink to call out the lies and the fear that lead us to war and to see the parallels between the war on terror and the new wars being started today. Jodi? Thank you, Emily. Great
7: job today. You know, after Congress voted us to war, I started an after-school writing program with Dave Eggers, A26LA, because I realized how uneducated even our members of Congress were. They were incapable of critically thinking about war. So yes, education is part of the peace economy that is strangled and privatized more and more every year by the war economy. So thank you for what you're raising. Today we've heard from so many deep-hearted, peace-filled, truth-telling activists on this tragic day that was followed by horrific terrorism, violence, and brutality by this, the United States of America. I thank you all so much for your openness, honesty, and your intimate stories. Some we will be grieving for days, and yet many, I think they will fuel also our passion for peace and our desires to end this insanity. Tomorrow is 9-12. We can all model how to respond in a different way. First, we ourselves must practice the forms of peace divesting ourselves from the war economy that forces us to act from alienation, scarcity, transaction, selfishness, competition, distraction, reaction, limitation, urgency, and us versus them. Instead, we need to practice what it is to cultivate a peace economy. Listening, connection, community building, interdependence, relational engagement, quality, attention, both and because we are all connected. You can learn more about divesting patterns at Code Pink and download our 21 Days to Divest from the War Economy. But I just wanted to make sure we knew it's up to us first. Then we need to bring our listening, relating, connected selves into the streets, exposing the costs of war that affect everyone. All needs lead back to the Pentagon, and its suck of money into death, destruction, annihilation, and as we have seen today, much grief. War and the Pentagon serve the war economy. And what has happened since 9-11 is the rich have gotten richer. The United States has moved right and the social fabric is in tatters. While the world is less safe and terrorism has increased everywhere. So tomorrow on 9-12, we launch Hashtag Cut the Pentagon, a big tent intended to pull the already grassroots activism together to show that the needs of the people and the planet are being denied by the stupidity of wars and the Pentagon. The next war is already happening. We hear it from members of the military right now China is who they are told their enemy is, and they think they are saving the people of Taiwan. There are already victims of this war on China and they are in the United States. Violence against Asians in the U.S. is on a steady rise. If you care about the people in Taiwan, the only answer is no war. Do not sell weapons to them to be a pawn in the U.S. aggression on China, and China is not our enemy. We all need to be more educated on China so we can be in cooperation and relationship for a future onward to peace. We
5: want, we 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 want to liberate a liberated land supporting
0: human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians.
1: You've been listening to The Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org, and last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time
0: think about crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds, with political ties, individualized alibis, disguise, and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse, got the skies like an ominous, so the ocean burn bright with waves full of poison, genocide, wars fought for little poison, the weapons manufactured, paid for wide taxes, while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing, all the prisons, building capacity, citizens, in the times for the master thief, goodbye and conquer, steal a masterpiece, open your eyes and realize what's happening, times running out, the reach, all potential, fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu, we got that lovely, but the love with problems in we're yeah, that-